0: Hey everyone, welcome back to curbside consults, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Clem, one of the editorial fellows this year. Today we are interviewing Samir Shah, a professor of pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, editor in chief of Journal of Hospital Medicine, and one of the authors on IDSA and Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society's new 2021 guidelines. On the Evaluation and Management of Pediatric Osteomyelitis. He practices actively in both pediatric hospital medicine and peds infectious diseases. Dr. Shell, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I am delighted to be here.
0: Excellent, as am I. Dr. Shah, can you give the listeners a glimpse into the guideline process and went into the development of these guidelines?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The guidelines were jointly sponsored by the Infectious Disease Society of America and the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society but included input from a number of other societies. The input and review additionally was provided by POSNA, the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America, the ID Society of America's Standards and Practice Guideline Committee, as well as the Board of Directors of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society, and several relevant sections and committees from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So there was pretty broad input, and the folks who were part of the panel represented these different stakeholder organizations as well.
0: How long did the guideline process take, and what were sort of the needs that went into development of the guideline?
1: Yeah, it's typically a two-year process, and the goal of this guideline was to obviously rely on the evidence, but we know that there are a relative paucity of randomized trials in pediatrics in general, and particularly in the area of bone and joint infections and so part of the challenge here was figuring out how can we make practical recommendations even when the recommendations rely on indirect evidence so for example observational studies or very large case series rather than direct evidence such as those generated by randomized trials and so we assembled each question using the pico format which is the patient or population the intervention the comparator group or the control, and what is the outcome that is most relevant? And that's a standard format, I think, that most folks who have gone through any medical training are relatively familiar with. And that helped us ask a series of relatively focused questions, really geared towards the practicing clinician.
0: That's awesome. Let's dive right in. So, as a MedPeeds hospitalist myself, when I'm doing inpatient medicine, Most of the osteomyelitis that I see is related to contiguous spread from, let's say, a diabetic foot ulcer. How does pediatric osteomyelitis differ in its pathophysiology?
1: Yeah, there are three main ways that children can develop bone infections. As you know, direct extension, which is much more common in adults from a contiguous site, can happen in children, but it is incredibly, incredibly rare. Children less than one year of age have these transphysial vessels So occasionally you will see an infection go from a bone to a joint. And in those scenarios, you'll have children who present with some vague leg pain, for example, and then they come to medical attention because they can't walk because there's obvious swelling of their knee. The infection can rarely go from the joint to the bone. And the reason you see that very rarely is once you have a swollen joint that is so exquisitely painful and tender that parents will bring the children or caregivers will bring the children right in. Uh, Second mechanism is penetrating trauma, which we see occasionally in kids as well. But by far and away, the most common mechanism for children developing a bone infection is hematogenous spread. So they develop bacteremia for one reason or another, and then that ends up seeding a part of the bone. The reason why it ends up in one particular bone and not another is not entirely clear that many children who come in with bone infections have had some history of antecedent trauma, mild trauma, not enough to bring them to medical attention, you know, running and falling, bike crashes, hit by a friend or perhaps more commonly a sibling. And and it's possible that that ends up leading to some very mild damage to the bone that affects the flow of blood and then ends up seeding, that that difficulty here is that these sorts of minor and incidental traumas are so common in children that it's hard to know whether this is just true true and unrelated or if there is something about the mechanism that leads to seeding of one particular bone as opposed to another in the setting of some minor or incidental trauma
0: right yeah i find it super humbling that in the guidelines they mentioned that infants can present with pseudoparalysis so for sure in the future i'll keep it on my differential or an extremity fracture, or non-accidental trauma, or just even refusal to bear weight. Let's move on to some labs that might help us with diagnosing osteomyelitis. Let's say a patient comes in with refusal to bear weight, or low-grade fevers, or bone pain. What is the utility of using blood cultures, or CRP, ESR, procalcitonin?
1: The two most important studies to obtain when you have a child in whom osteomyelitis is suspected is a C-reactive protein and a blood culture. The CRP is elevated in more than 90% of kids with osteomyelitis at the time of presentation. If the CRP is normal, osteomyelitis is unlikely, or at least acute osteomyelitis is unlikely. An elevated CRP doesn't tell you that it's osteomyelitis, but a normal CRP strongly argues against it being osteomyelitis. The other benefit of the CRP is that's something we obviously follow as one of the biomarkers to help determine whether the child is getting better in addition to clinical exam, and we can talk about that more in a moment. Blood culture is incredibly important as well. And it's important because sometimes it's the only opportunity to identify the causative organism. That blood cultures are positive in about one-third of kids with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. If the causative agent is staph aureus, it's positive about half the time. So blood cultures are incredibly valuable because they allow you to have directed or definitive therapy Um, and because you'll have not only the organism, but more often than not, you'll also have your susceptibilities, which can then allow you to go to the narrowest spectrum antibiotic that is possible for that particular organism. We historically used to get an ESR or an erythrocyte sedimentation rate. That is no longer routinely recommended. And the reason it's not is that it takes a long time to go up and it takes a long time To come down, the CRP goes up rather quickly and it comes down rather quickly, and because of that, the ESR does not add a whole lot anymore. So we no longer routinely recommend it. In the in the olden days, in olden days, for example, when I was a resident, we used to get the ESR and we sometimes would use normalization of the ESR to determine or one of the things that would help us determine how long we ought to treat. And the ESR takes about three to four weeks to become normal. It's become clear that that's probably not a helpful strategy. Procalcitonin is something else that has been examined in a handful of studies. And I think that has potential, but there's not yet enough evidence to know with any degree of certainty whether procalcitonin is superior to the C-reactive protein. As you know, that procalcitonin is often elevated in bacterial infections. And for some conditions like pneumonia, where a CRP is elevated for any cause of inflammation, procalcitonin tends to be elevated disproportionately in cases of bacterial infection. So it is possible that over the next five or ten years, as we accumulate more data, that we may rely on procalcitonin more heavily. But at this point, there's just not enough data to know how sensitive it is in identifying kids with osteomyelitis.
0: Got it. Yeah, I think this is one of the areas where pediatrics is probably leading the way and ahead of the game compared to adult medicine. Because in my practice, I've still seen a lot of adult osteo being trended with ESRs in the outpatient clinic. And I think it's worth noting that because pediatric osteomyelitis results from the hematogenous spread most likely that you described earlier, blood cultures are potentially higher yield in this population. So another difference with adult medicine.
1: Yes, absolutely. The other test that folks have historically gotten is a complete blood count. And it's really hard to get people to not do this for a couple of reasons. One is that white blood cell count is a biomarker, but it's a terrible biomarker that most kids with bacterial infections will have a high white blood cell count, but most kids with high white blood cell counts will not have a bacterial infection. And so, therefore, it's not very good. But it is a test that people have a high degree of comfort with. The one potential benefit of getting the complete blood count in children whom osteomyelitis is a consideration is that if you identify leukopenia, so a low white blood cell count, or anemia or thrombocytopenia, meaning a low platelet count, that might clue you in to something else going on, that is this more likely to be a hematologic malignancy, for example, rather than osteomyelitis. And so that's the one potential benefit of getting a complete blood count. So most folks will get that, but it doesn't add meaningfully to the diagnosis of osteomyelitis.
0: And I had also read in the guidelines that sometimes Kingella can present with a lower or absent CRP elevation. So, that is one scenario where you might want to suspect that if you have high suspicion for osteomyelitis.
1: Yeah, I think when your CRP is normal and you don't have a great alternate explanation for the child's symptoms, I think it's important to keep osteomyelitis in the differential.
0: Can you walk us through the conventional x-ray, MRI, and ultrasonography for osteomyelitis diagnosis and describe when you think each would be appropriate?
1: Yeah, x-rays are almost always indicated. And as many folks know that it typically takes two to three weeks before you start appreciating changes consistent with osteomyelitis on the x-ray. Most kids present within days of symptoms, if not earlier. And so in that scenario, when you're evaluating a child for the possibility of osteomyelitis, If you see bone changes that are suggestive of osteomyelitis, that can be extraordinarily helpful. But the main reason to get an X-ray is to exclude other conditions that we often see in children, namely fractures. If you see a discrete lucency, for example, in a young child, you can have neuroblastoma with metastatic infection to the bone. And so those X-rays can be very helpful in identifying other potential conditions. Rarely are they diagnostic, Of osteomyelitis. If you had an abnormal x-ray that was highly suggestive of osteomyelitis, that would obviate the need for additional evaluation or imaging. But because those x-rays are very often normal, we proceed to the next step. And nowadays, MRI is first line for diagnosis of osteomyelitis. And the reason it is, it has a high sensitivity and a fairly high specificity. And what I mean by that is most kids with osteomyelitis will have an abnormal MRI and we see very few false positives, that there are characteristics on MRI. Uh, In addition to involvement of the marrow, you may see subperiosteal collections or subperiosteal abscesses. Very often, you'll see adjacent inflammation of the muscles or soft tissue, and those are highly suggestive of infection rather than of malignancy. We don't use CT to diagnose osteomyelitis unless MRI is not available. CT just doesn't give you enough resolution of the marrow to understand whether there's infection. It can diagnose things like pyomyositis. If you have a fairly large subperiosteal collection, the CT will reveal that as well. But in general, I would avoid CT if an MRI is available. We used to do bone scans or scintigraphy to identify osteomyelitis, and that has really fallen out of favor for a couple of reasons. One is that it's not nearly as sensitive as MRI in identifying the abnormality. Two, what you're picking up on the bone scan is evidence of bone remodeling, and so it, even if you have an abnormality, it doesn't tell you that it's a high probability of osteomyelitis. And then the third problem is it's fairly time-consuming, and so it's just not a very practical test. Got it.
0: What about ultrasonography? When is that sometimes helpful? Is it mostly in the setting of an abscess, or can you describe when we would use that?
1: We almost never use ultrasonography when osteomyelitis is in the differential. The sensitivity is quite low um, compared with MRI the sensitivity of ultrasound in diagnosing osteomyelitis somewhere between 15 and 20%. So really, really bad. Even though it's quick to do, it doesn't usually add a whole lot of information. In one scenario that it might be helpful is if you are looking at the nearby joint. You can use the ultrasound to get a quick sense of whether there's a fluid in the joint that may be amenable to aspiration, because you may want to know, hey, is this just a reactive effusion because you have so much adjacent inflammation of the bone, or is it septic arthritis either as the primary condition or because of direct extension from the bone? And the ultrasound can also guide your diagnostic aspiration, and so it can be helpful in that way, but it's not the preferred diagnostic test for diagnosing osteomyelitis, but it can be a helpful adjunct.
0: Now, let's say that I've gathered all the relevant data, and I think that the child in front of me has osteomyelitis. When is it important to start antibiotics once I have all that information? And when is it okay to sort of wait for more diagnostics?
1: If the child is clinically ill, if you have concern about sepsis, If there's tachycardia in the absence of fever, if the child has no appearance, that's a scenario you want to start antibiotics right away. And the reason you want to do that is you don't want the child to deteriorate while you're figuring out what is going on, because that obviously is suboptimal, and that's probably the understatement of the podcast episode. But if the child is stable, there's no rush to start antibiotics, that you generally have time to do your evaluation, wait for the labs to come back and even get an MRI before you start antibiotics. And the advantage of that is that if there is significant inflammation, if there are subperiosteal abscesses that are amenable to aspiration, either for diagnostic or therapeutic purposes, you have the advantage that the child has received no antibiotics when that sample is obtained. And so you have a slightly higher likelihood of recovering the organism. There have been a couple of smaller studies that have shown that giving antibiotics And then performing a diagnostic aspiration within the next 48 hours will have no meaningful effect on the yield of aspiration of a subperiosteal abscess. So if antibiotics are given, it's not all doom and gloom, you still have a pretty high likelihood of identifying an organism from a diagnostic aspiration of subperiosteal collections. That's very different than if you have an adjacent collection in the joint in which giving antibiotics will likely lead to sterilization of that joint, rather quickly. But as long as the child is stable, there is no rush to start antibiotics. And that gives you time to figure out whether either diagnostic aspiration or surgical debridement of the bone may be helpful.
0: Great. Let's say I decided that I need to start antibiotics, say for a sick child, which pathogen should I cover? And do I need, for example, empiric MRSA coverage?
1: That's a great question. I think that's one we wrestle with Quite often, and part of that depends on what the prevalence of MRSA is in your area. And that has really fluctuated over time. 10 years ago, clindamycin was our go to because we saw quite a bit of MRSA. What's happened over time, and it's a really interesting phenomenon, is that we are seeing less MRSA and we are seeing more MSSA, so methicillin susceptible staph aureus, that is resistant to clindamycin. And so many institutions, including our own, no longer use clindamycin as first-line therapy for osteomyelitis in a child who is not critically ill. We will start cefazolin IV initially. And the advantage of cefazolin is it has better killing for staph aureus than clindamycin. The scenarios in which we would prefer clindamycin over cefazolin is if the child has risk factors for MRSA. So if they have a personal history recurrent skin and soft tissue infections. If they've been hospitalized for prolonged periods recently, or if they've had a previous MRSA isolate from either their nares or from any site of infection, those are scenarios that might make us lean towards either clindamycin or vancomycin as the initial therapy while we're waiting to get a little bit more information. The other really important point, staph is the most common cause of osteomyelitis, Group A strep is reasonably common as well. The, the beauty of that is most of the antibiotics that cover Staph aureus tend to cover group A strep with trimethoprim sulfa being the one exception, and we can talk about that more if you'd like. The other thing we really worry about is in younger kids is Kingella kinge. and this is a bacterium that is often found in the soil, and because kids generally three or younger tend to put their hands in their mouth a lot, often after playing in the dirt they are at disproportionate risk for Kingella. Kingella is tricky because it tends to cause a milder spectrum of symptoms than Staph and other typical bacteria. And it's also harder to isolate in traditional culture when you're taking a sample and putting it on a blood auger plate, for example. And so with Kingella, what they found is that when you inoculate it into a blood culture bottle, your yield is substantially higher for Kingella you don't isolate Staph more often than you do from regular culture, but because the blood culture bottles are a nutrient-rich medium, you tend to isolate Kingella more often than you do in conventional culture plates. And kids younger than three years of age, the advantage of Cefazolin is it also covers Kingella kingae, whereas clindamycin
0: does not. That's a great pro tip to put them in blood culture bottles like that. So let's say a patient is stabilized on their antibiotic regimen and we're thinking about making a switch to oral antibiotics. In adults, often this takes a long time, multiple weeks, even. How about in kids? Like when do we make that switch?
1: As soon as you possibly can. And this is really important because we did a large study that included patients from 32 hospitals and over 4,000 kids. And it was an observational study. But what we found is that there's no difference in treatment failure rates between kids who receive prolonged IV antibiotics versus those who had early transition to antibiotics by mouth. I have a fun little mnemonic that can help folks think about whether to make that oral antibiotic switch. Some people find it ridiculous, but the mnemonic is colic. And if you'll humor me for a moment to let me walk you through this. So colic, uh, C, clinical improvement is observed is the patient getting better? Are the things that they came in with no longer quite as bad than when they first came in? So that's C. O, oral route is not compromised. So are they suffering from conditions that preclude absorption? We see children who were born extremely premature who now have short gut syndrome, as an example. So if they have significant watery stools, you'd worry that the oral antibiotic is not able to be absorbed. L, are the laboratory markers improving? So we talked about the CRP tended to go down pretty quickly, usually sometime between day two and three. If you get the CRP initially and say the value is 15, and you get the CRP on day three and the value is 17, the tricky part of that is you don't know if the CRP is going up or if the CRP was much higher between days one and three and has now started to come down. And so that's one important pro tip here is you probably want to see another value. And then I is the indication for oral therapy, and that's virtually any condition with the exceptions of meningitis and endocarditis. So osteomyelitis clearly falls into this category where a reasonable indication to use oral therapy. And then the last C in colic is that there's a comparable oral antibiotic option. The other really important thing we should talk about is, I made a comment earlier that if it covers Staph aureus more often than not, it covers Group A strep, with trimethoprim sulfa being the one exception. Trimethoprim sulfa can be good if you know what the organism is. So if it's Staph aureus and it's susceptible to trimethoprim sulfa, then not unreasonable to use it. The downside is that because, and this is going back to like first year med school clinical pharmacology, is that the way trimethoprim works is it inhibits that dihydrofolate reductase. And what that means is that it prevents the formation of a folic acid derivative, which is instrumental for DNA synthesis by the bacterium. If you have an abscess, there is lots of folate floating around. So even if trimethoprim sulfa inhibits the production of folate for the bacteria, there's enough folate floating around in the abscess that the bacteria doesn't need it and so you will see higher rates of treatment failure with trimethoprim sulfa in the setting of large abscesses than absent of abscesses
0: so that's the one area of caution that's extremely helpful and i always appreciate mnemonics so i love your mnemonic and will be stealing that for my rounds
1: one other important point to make is that historically any child with Staph aureus bacteremia received prolonged iv antibiotics for the possibility of endocarditis what we know is that in sharp contrast to adults, when you have a child with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, right, the mechanism is you have bacteremia and you've seeded the bone. If that blood culture sterilizes quickly, right, the child has one positive culture, two positive cultures, and that's it. And they don't have a murmur on clinical exam, and they don't have other stigmata of endocarditis, such as scleral hemorrhages, proteinuria splinter hemorrhages in the nails or lesions on the palms or soles of their feet, then endocarditis is highly unlikely, and you can make that switch as soon as the blood cultures are negative. Obviously, if you have any concerning features, you would want to get an echocardiogram to exclude the possibility of endocarditis, and then you'd have to make a decision about how comfortable do you feel that endocarditis is not present. But endocarditis is uncommon in children with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. So even in the setting of staph bacteremia, as long as you don't have concerning features for endocarditis, it's very reasonable to switch to antibiotics by mouth.
0: That's a great difference to highlight because I think there's a reflexive desire to get an echocardiogram in all patients with staph aureus sort of bacteremia, at least in adults. So in general, for uncomplicated infections, how long will the child need to be on antibiotics total?
1: Yeah, this is one of those where we always sort of do a little hand waving and say three to four weeks. The good news is you don't generally need to go longer than four weeks. So then you may ask, why do we say three to four weeks instead of committing to one or the other? And there's an interesting reason for that. Back in the mid 1970s, there was a great study that looked at about 130 kids with osteomyelitis. And what they found is the treatment failure rate in those who received three weeks or less of IV antibiotics had a failure rate of about 20%. Those who received more than three weeks of IV antibiotics had a failure rate of only about 2%. And so because of that, it became this dogma that we need to treat for at least three weeks, if not longer. What are the problems here? Well, there are a few different problems here. One, we have better antibiotics now than we did in 1975 both in general, but also we have antibiotics that have much better absorption rates. And we use different dosing now, for example, if we're using cephalexin, And remember that that study looked at three weeks or less of therapy. So what that means is that there are a decent number of kids in that study who got less than three weeks of therapy. But because of that, um, and because of the consequences of treatment failure, we've sort of drawn this line in the sand of, ah, you need at least three weeks, maybe four. More recent studies of children in Finland, and this is mostly observational data, have shown that there's no difference in treatment failure rates of kids who have received 20 versus 30 days of antibiotic therapy. So I think the reality is for most cases of acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, three weeks is probably sufficient so long as the child is better and the CRP has normalized. The scenarios in which I would extend that therapy a little bit longer include that the child was really slow to get better, or if the infection is really extensive. Those are things that would make me hesitate a little bit and say, hey, maybe we need to go a little bit longer.
0: And what are some potential complications of osteomyelitis that we should be aware of when we're following these patients? Outpatient they're on oral antibiotics already. Is it okay for them to follow up with genpedes or do they need to follow up with, say, ortho or infectious ID people? That's a great question.
1: In many systems, These children tend to follow up both with infectious diseases and orthopedics because the goal is early detection of complications, either failure of treatment or need for additional drainage, or if there is evidence of, say, limb length discrepancy, which in the first four or six weeks you might not see, but for children who have particularly severe infections and those infections that involve the growth plate. That longer term follow up may be necessary. But I do think this is a regional phenomenon where, in some places, if pediatricians feel comfortable following these children up and having a low threshold to refer to subspecialists, that's not an unreasonable approach.
0: So I think we've done a pretty good job covering the guideline for general practitioners. Do you have any additional comments you want to highlight for listeners?
1: Yeah, I think we used to keep children with osteomyelitis in the hospital for a week or more these hospitalizations have become very short with this early transition to antibiotics. But one thing that's really important to remember is that we don't have to tie the switch to oral antibiotics to discharge. That if the child is feeling better and you're on duty two or three of hospitalization, that CRP has started to go down. You can make the switch to oral antibiotics and then continue to observe for symptom improvement for another day if you're trying to figure out how things are evolving. And so conventionally, it's been, hey, the child is ready to go home, let's switch them to antibiotics by mouth. There is no need to wait for discharge before switching the child to oral antibiotics. So that's one um, really, really, really important point. The other point of contention comes is when you don't have a positive culture. So you haven't identified the organism. And there has been a question about, in that scenario, do you need to keep them on IV antibiotics? And the answer is emphatically, no, absolutely not. If you are started an antibiotic and the child is getting better, then you have evidence that the antibiotic is doing what it needs to do. And so as long as you can find a comparable oral option, even in the setting of negative cultures, it is very reasonable to switch to antibiotics by mouth. There's no reason that A negative culture commits you to a prolonged antibiotic course. Again, remember that blood cultures will be positive in about a third of kids overall with osteomyelitis and about half of kids with staph aureus osteomyelitis. If you end up debriding the bone or draining subperiosteal abscesses, you may find the causative organism. But in a quarter to a third of cases, we're still left without an organism. But if the child is getting better on the antibiotic you've given them, you have some reasonable proof that the antibiotic is working and is effective against the organism, whatever it happens to be. And so you can absolutely switch to an antibiotic by mouth and finish out the duration of treatment with antibiotics by mouth and close follow-up. I don't know if you want to throw any dad jokes in at the beginning or the end, but... You could. Do you have a special joke you want to tell us? Um, why do skeletons feel lonely?
0: I have no idea. <laughs> why?
1: Because they have no body. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Are skeletons good liars? I have no idea. No, because you can see right through them. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw, for your expert tips and for contributing to this guideline that will help all practitioners everywhere with pediatric osteomyelitis. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Samir Shah for joining us today to discuss the latest guidelines. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamnick. Herbsite Consoles is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.